0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. In the rainforests of South America and the Caribbean lives a toad, scientific name Pippa Pippa, that's about the size of your hand. It's shaped a bit like a hand as well, since it's so flat it looks like it was run over by a cartoon steamroller. The broad surface of the Suriname toad is helpful because its wide back is how it gives birth. My name's Moxie, and this is your Brain on Facts. A person could easily fill hours of airtime talking about bizarre mating habits of animals. From the white-spotted pufferfish that draws intricate patterns in the sandy ocean floor to attract a mate, to the spotted hyena females whose pseudopenis, which is sometimes larger than the male's actual penis, is also their birth canal. Note today we're going to focus on the latter two-thirds of the process, gestation or incubation and birth. Even limiting the topic, there's still a lot I won't get to, like how certain reptiles determine the sex of their offspring with the exact temperature in their nests. The gestation period of animals is a matter of scale. The larger an animal is, the longer it takes to make a new one, despite the resources of the mother being large as well. If all the dimensions of a given animal were doubled, that animal would now have eight times the volume owing to the square cube rule, and hence eight times the weight of before. But the thickness of the umbilical cord, through which all of the growth nutrients flow, will only be four times as large. So all else being equal, it would take twice as long for the necessary nutrients to go through. If you want to get super math nerdy about it, and you're welcome to, The volume and therefore weight of an animal is proportionate to the cube of the scale, so scale is proportionate to the cube root of the weight of the animal. I read it, but I don't understand it. We can scale back on the maths a bit by looking at examples. Humans have a gestation period of 40 weeks, one week short of nine months, while humans' best friend has a gestation period of two months. For small animals, like rabbits, the period is about one month and for mice, about three weeks. The medal for shortest gestation of a North American mammal goes to the possum, which finishes pregnancy soup to nuts in under two weeks. This may have less to do with their size than the fact that their average lifespan is only about three years, so replacements are needed constantly. Elephants are pregnant for a long time. Like, really, really long. 95 weeks, in fact almost two years. This marathon baby building is one reason that female elephants usually don't have more than four calves in their whole lifetime. Who's got the time? A giraffe needs almost 15 months to form its 150-pound or 68-kilo baby, which starts life off with a bang. Giraffes give birth standing up, so it is de rigueur for babies to fall six feet or two meters to the ground in the process of being born. There are exceptions to our easy-to-follow, big babies-means-long-pregnancy guidelines, of course. A 110-pound or 50-kilo hippo is ready to debut in only 8 months, even faster than a 7-pound human baby. Black bears are pregnant for 30 weeks, but their cubs only weigh about 1 pound or half a kilo. One thing that this list of gestation periods can't take into account are pregnant pauses, by which I mean pausing pregnancies. That's right, some animals have the ability to say, you know what, now is not a super great time for me to have babies. Let me just hold this embryo in its tracks and turn my uterus into a sci-fi stasis chamber while I wait for conditions to improve. Since it was discovered in the 1850s, more than 130 species of mammal have been found to have this ability. The pause, called diapause conveniently, can last anywhere between a couple of days and up to a year. In most species, this happens when the embryo is still a tiny ball of less than a hundred cells that has yet to attach to the uterus. Pausing pregnancy isn't the sole domain of any one class or family. It's found in certain kinds of bats, bears, seals, rodents, deers and armadillos, among others. More than a third of the species that take a breather during gestation are found from the capital of strange nature, Australia. Of the 20 or so species of kangaroo and wallaby combined, there are only three that can't pause a pregnancy. In fact, it's the tamar wallaby that can put embryos on hold for up to 11 months. There are a few mechanisms at work here. Some animals mate right after giving birth. It's like a backup plan in case something happens to the newborn. If nothing bad happens and the newborn is nursing, the physical taxation of lactation stalls the understudy fetus. Once the extant offspring is weaned, the fetus begins developing again. The second way is to pause every pregnancy until the time is right, usually to do with the weather. For example, minks mate around the start of March, but put the embryos on pause until after the spring equinox, when the days are getting longer in the northern hemisphere. This ensures that the young are born in spring when food will be more plentiful and the temperatures more mild. Some herbivorous animals will pause pregnancies in times of drought, hoping that the rain will come back to get plant life growing again. The tammar wallaby combines these two methods to ensure that the joey is ready to leave the pouch in spring rather than the middle of a hot Australian summer. Diapause was first identified in 1854 after hunters in Europe noticed that pregnancy in roe deer seemed to last a lot longer than in other types of deer. Since then, scientists have been fascinated by this process, and it's helped us understand more about basic reproductive processes in all mammals. But how the process worked at the molecular level is still a mystery. Until recently, there seemed to be no connection between which species used it and which didn't. And there didn't seem to be any unifying mechanism for how the pregnancy was paused. Even the hormones controlling diapause are different between mammal groups. Researchers in Poland were able to pause embryos in a sheep, a non-diaposed species, by transferring them into a mouse uterus and then back into the sheep, with no apparent ill effects. This indicates the potential for diapause could lie in all mammals, including humans, but I would still take my birth control pill if I were you. What experiments with diapause could do for us is to improve our understanding of how to make and select healthy embryos for in vitro fertilization, as well as to create better stem cells that could be used to target cancers. The first stem cells ever isolated by scientists came from a mouse embryo in diapause. Whether or not the pregnancy was paused, once the baby or babies come out, they need to eat, and for mammal babies, that means milk. A mother's milk contains a concoction of nutrients, fats, proteins, and carbohydrates that are essential for a baby's development, as well as a cocktail of protective factors to effectively supply the baby with an immune system until it can develop its own. All mammals produce milk, but they don't all produce the same milk. To give you a baseline for comparison before I start throwing out numbers, cow milk is about 3.5% protein and 5% carbs, While human milk is about 1% protein and 7% carbs, and both are about 88% water, you won't find much water in the milk of the hooded seal. Their milk is more than 60% fat, more like a premium milkshake than milk. This high-fat milk is crucial for the seal pups, worn into the freezing waters of the North Atlantic and Arctic Oceans. The pups also only nurse for about 4 days, having been born on floating ice an environment that is both unstable and unreliable. So the seal mama needs to pack a lot of energy-dense fat into her milk. The pups can consume over 16 pounds, or 7 kilograms, of milk every day. Their body weight doubles in the first week of life. Conversely, in the savannas of Africa, the black rhino has the skimmest milk going, only about 0.2% fat. They also nurse for almost two years— which is only possible with a thin milk, given how many resources lactation demands. Tamar wallabies, which are quickly stealing today's show, produce milk for their joeys at Willy Wonka levels of sugar, about 14%, double the amount of human milk and one of the highest levels among mammals. For my money, the most interesting thing about marsupial mammaries is that they can produce two different milks at the same time. Wallabies and kangaroos can conceivably, no pun intended, have one embryo in the uterus, a basically fetal joey in the pouch, and an older joey who still comes in to nurse. The teeny tiny joey gets milk rich in sugars, while the older one gets milk higher in protein and fat. Marsupials are kind of the lobby Keurig machine of the animal kingdom. The most protein-rich milk comes from one of the last animals you think of when the mention of protein conjures up images of large, ripply men lifting heavy things, the Eastern Cottontail Rabbit. The 15% protein comes in handy as they have to leave their young unattended for long stretches to go out and forage, returning to the nest only once or twice a day to nurse. Such a rich diet means that the little bunnies are able to fend for themselves after only nursing for a few weeks. Contrary to what Ben Stiller told you, you don't have to have nipples to give milk. Take, for instance, the echidna. Similar to the platypus, the echidna is a mammal that lays eggs. That, combined with its porcupine spines, bird beak, kangaroo pouch for the female, and four-headed penis for the male, is arguable proof that God was high as balls for at least some of the creation. The platypus and four species of echidnas are monotremes, They lay eggs through the orifice they also use for both their urogenital and digestive tracts. After mating, a female echidna lays a single, soft-shelled egg, about the size of a dime, into her pouch. Ten days later, the baby echidna hatches. Instead of feeding the baby, which has the ridiculously cute name of a puggle, via a nipple, echidnas have special glands in their pouches called milk patches that secrete milk through their skin, Sort of like having a saucer of milk instead of a bottle. Mammals may have a monopoly on milk, but some birds, like pigeons, do produce a milk-like substance for their babies, too. And unlike mammals, both male and female pigeons produce this milky substance to feed the squabs. Pigeon parents produce what is known as crop milk, which is secreted into a small sac at the base of their throats that normally stores and moistens their food. Once the squab is hatched, the parents regurgitate fat and protein-rich crop milk into the baby bird's mouth. Flamingos and emperor penguins are also known to produce crop milk. Emperor penguins are a shining example of males helping with the young, since the male penguin will tend the egg and the subsequent chick for two months while the female's off hunting. They don't actually sit on the egg. They keep it warm by holding it up off the ice on their feet and covering it with a roll of skin called a brooding pouch. Even as great as emperor penguin dads are, they had stiff competition for the world's greatest dad mug. For almost every species on Earth, the female holds the majority of the responsibility when it comes to pregnancy, childbirth, and looking after the young until they can survive on their own. Almost every species. The seahorse, pipefish, sea dragons, and other members of the Cygnathidae family, which means fused jaw, are the exceptions that proves the rule. Seahorse baby-making starts with a dance. For several days prior to the actual mating, the two fish, and reminder, they are fish, will entwine their tails and swim around together. When the time is right, they swim in a sort of snout-to-snout embrace, and the female uses an organ called an ovipositor to transfer her eggs to the body of the male in his brood pouch. You can track the progress of the transfer by watching the female get skinnier and the male get bigger as it goes on, like a really strange progress bar. When it's all done, the female swims off on her merry way, though she does pop in on the male each day to say hi. The male finds a choice piece of plant life to anchor himself to while he fertilizes the eggs. Two to four weeks later, depending on the species, as many as 1,000 My Little Sea Ponies, called Fry, spew forth. The sheer number, and the fact that the male will be ready to mate again in a matter of hours, is helpful because the survival rate for the Fry is really bad. They're basically like plankton, floating around waiting to be eaten for the first few weeks. The process is similar for leafy sea dragons, which look like seahorses in a carnival parade except the eggs are stuck to a brood patch on the dragon's tail rather than being in a pouch, and the sea dragon fry are better able to take care of themselves. The seahorse's uncurled cousin, the pipefish, uses a slightly different approach. Like seahorses, female pipefish drop their eggs into the male's brood pouch, which is on their belly but kind of close to their head. There, they fertilize the eggs and carry them until the offspring, usually between five and forty in number, hatch a few weeks later. What's interesting about pipefish is their ability to use resources differently for the eggs from different females. Males of this species have been known to not take care of offspring that come from a mother who is smaller than another mother that gave them eggs. Males put more resources into broods from larger, more attractive females. They also don't put as much effort into ensuring survival in a brood if they've just hatched a successful, healthy brood from a large female. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for the New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti democratic paratroopers into Montana. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Faceoff launches April 9th. With Wired Science, you can geek out all you want. It's a podcast for anyone obsessed with math, science, space, biology, or technology. And it provides in-depth coverage on current news and discoveries. From strange diseases that turn your tongue fuzzy I'd like to welcome all the people that joined Patreon.com/YourBrainOnFacts in the month of January: Erspo, Michael L, Mackenzie, Christina, and Shanti. And our Patreon is about to get even better. The five-dollar Brainstormer level will soon be four dollars, and the ten-dollar Brain Candy level is about to go down to eight. Plus, all members, even the $2 Brain Teasers, will get Spot the Lie, the Patreon-exclusive podcast that is 80% amazing facts and 20% tricky lies, while the other levels get one and two bonus mini-episodes each month, respectively. Plus, there is a special offer on the horizon, beginning February 16th, through Leap Day, Anyone who joins patreon.com slash yourbrainonfacts or upgrades their existing membership will get their choice of an exclusive Cards Against Humanity expansion pack made of weird facts or a print of interesting tidbits beginning with each letter of your name. So if you've been thinking about supporting the show, be ready to join patreon.com slash yourbrainonfacts on Sunday, February 16th. Our latest review comes from ODM3, who says, in reference to episode 95, Outstanding show sprinkled with brilliant humor. Thank you so much, ODM3. And we got a great recommendation over on Twitter from F.M. Tesla, who told his followers, Do you remember when you were a mini-boy and spent hours in Encarta learning things in encyclopedia style because there was no Wikipedia? I found a podcast that is basically the same, but it's on Spotify. Look for Your Brain on Facts. Nerdo approved. Today I heard one called You Gonna Eat That?, that talked about the rarest foods in the world and how Jello went from being a super fancy meal to being something all basic, and going through how Catholics looked for loopholes to eat meat in the Holy Week. I love it. Now, it bears noting that this was translated by Google from Spanish to English, and what Google translated as mini-boy actually means dork, which is even better. So thank you to FM Tesla, and welcome to all of their Twitter followers who have checked out the show. Thanks also to our regular signal boosters, Eric, Richard, The Most Stable Genius, and the podcasts Bring on the Weird, Odd Dad Out, Varmints, and Strange Animals. How did you do on the clues for last week's episode? The posts that I put up were a picture of Max Headroom, a full moon in a captain's hat, and Scott Ian from Anthrax as a zombie. The answer was broadcast signal hijacking which included the infamous Max Hedrum incident, Captain Midnight, and an emergency message about zombies that was also used in an anthrax song. If you want to see the clues for that week's episode, be sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram.com yourbrainonfacts and Twitter at brainonfactspod. And there's swag in it for anyone who guesses correctly, but be warned, my clues tend to raise more questions than they answer. Also, Facebook Pages Manager isn't alerting me to posts and comments, again, so you haven't been ignored folks who've been communicating with me via Facebook. I just didn't know about it, and I'll get caught up on all of those shortly. Though shortly is how I do everything. Seahorses and their kin aren't the only underwater co-parents. The African cichlid does what they do without benefit of a brood pouch. After the females laid her eggs, preferably on a smooth rock, and the male has fertilized them, the female scoops the eggs up in her mouth, where they stay until hatching. This process is called mouth brooding, and several species of fish do it. Some are maternal mouth brooders, some are paternal, while others trade off, which is called biparental mouth brooding. Regardless of whose parenting, the point is to keep the eggs safe until the little fry can swim away though some species will also let the tiny fry back into their mouth for a while, like a kangaroo with a joey. What's normal for cichlids looks like an opportunity for the cuckoo catfish. Like the namesake bird, these catfish are brood parasites. Rather than going through all the fuss and bother of making a nest and tending to their offspring, they get another animal to do it for them. Without that animal's permission or even knowledge. The cuckoo catfish barges in on cyclic mating, eating some cichlid eggs and depositing some of their own in the confusion as the cichlids try to run them off. Catfish eggs develop faster and hatch sooner than the cichlid eggs, which start to hatch about the same time the catfish fry need to start eating. The catfish intruders use their wide jaws and extra teeth to devour the new hatchlings head first. If they run out of cichlid hatchlings, they start to eat one another. It might be better down where it's wetter, but there's mouth brooding on dry land too, and it goes by the name of Darwin's frog. Named for American writer and activist Mike Darwin, no, of course it wasn't, it was named for Charles Darwin, this South American frog has a head that looks like a curling dead leaf to help it hide from predators. And inside that leafy head is the next generation of their froggy family line, When a female Darwin's frog lays her eggs, her mate keeps a careful watch until the tadpoles hatch. Then, like a temperate and well-intentioned Kronos, the male basically swallows his young, squirreling them away to grow safely in his vocal sac until they have legs and are ready to make a go of it. Unfortunately, one of the two species of Darwin's frog hasn't been spotted in the wild since 1980, and researchers are nearly certain it's extinct. The other species is in a precipitous decline, And for once, humans aren't the primary reason why. Instead, the blame rests with the chytrid fungus, which is deadly to amphibians. What if, rather than kinda swallowing the young, Darwin's frog totally actually swallowed them? Well then, we would be talking about the Australian gastric brooding frog. Why is it always Australia? The Australian gastric brooding frog, thought to be extinct since 2002 had a bizarre method of maternal care. The female swallowed her fertilized eggs and incubated her young in her stomach, her actual stomach, for about six weeks. Her babies go through their tadpole stage, safe inside mom's stomach, to later emerge from her mouth as fully developed froglets. But wait, if they're in her stomach, why don't they get digested? The mother frog not only stops eating, but also stops producing stomach acid. There seems to be a chemical released by the eggs and hatchlings that inhibit the production of acid, though scientists don't know what that is. The mother would brood about two dozen eggs at a go, which, by the time they were ready to be spat out, could make up about 40% of her total body weight. That would be like a woman who weighed 150 pounds or 68 kilos, carrying 60 pounds or 27 kilos of baby in her stomach. It's not especially comfortable for the frog design to do it, either. The young frogs stretch the mother's stomach to the point that it completely compresses her lungs, forcing her to breathe through her skin. The baby froglets normally emerge one or a few at a time over a period of days as they become ready. If the mother sensed danger, though, she'd give birth to all of them at once by vomiting them out. Researchers once observed a female expel six little frogs all at once, shooting them about 40 inches or one meter into the air. All of these animal mothers have one thing in common, a male mate. But a partner is optional for animals capable of parthenogenesis, sciency-speak for virgin birth. It's not that the females are fertilizing their own eggs. The eggs are able to develop without having been fertilized. Some animals, like whiptail lizards, are fully asexual and don't need a male to give birth. While there are also animals that can mate with a male, but don't always do so. Everything from brine shrimp, to wasps, to sharks, and even domestic turkeys. Scientists initially thought that parthenogenesis only happened with animals in prolonged captivity. That animals wouldn't have a need to do so if they weren't isolated. Such as the case of a python in the Louisville Zoo, who had never been in contact with a male of her species, but produced six snake babies over four years. They've since learned that virgin births can happen in nature even when there are males around, like with the Australian stick bug, who will drive away males that she finds wanting and jolly well do it herself. In the 1800s, reports started appearing of virgin births among chickens. For those who need a basic farmyard husbandry primer, poultry lay eggs regularly, those the ones you eat, but you need a male, generally speaking, if you want baby poultry. Researchers started studying similar events in turkeys, finding that the turkeys were laying unfertilized eggs that still developed into live chicks. In most documented instances of parthenogenesis, the offspring is female, a half-clone of the mother. The turkey poults, however, were always male, which was put down to a quirk of bird genetics where male sex chromosomes are dominant. Soon, a parthenogenic strain of domestic turkeys was developed in which most males appeared normal and reproduced successfully. Scientifically speaking, the turkeys were regarded more as a curiosity, something that only happened in human-imposed conditions. In the past few decades, though, more and more cases of virgin births have been reported in snakes, lizards, and fish, including sharks. Just what we needed—infinitely replicating sharks— do the people who greenlight sci fi original movies know about this? In 2001, one of three captive adult female bonnet head sharks gave birth to a healthy female pup. The sharks had been caught when they were not yet breeding age, yet, one of them in the tank had clearly given birth. Genetic tests confirmed that no males had been involved, and since then, the phenomenon has been discovered in four other shark species. In 2006, scientists reported that two different Komodo dragons, giant carnivorous lizards with toxic spit, had also had virgin births at different UK zoos. Scientists have also documented different snake species, including boas and pythons, giving birth in captivity in the absence of males. This left two questions. How and why? One possible answer may lie with the whiptail lizard. Certain subspecies are entirely female. Males have been cut out completely from the reproductive process. Each female produces asexually, creating new generations of females. Creating such an exclusive, no-boys-allowed club has its benefits. If any of these lizards were left stranded, they could still pass on their genetic material, the ultimate goal of all animals. If you had to wait around for a male to show up, your DNA might end with you. That's thought to be the reason for the virgin snake birth in Louisville. The snake's name is Thelma, by the way. Thelma lived in a climate-controlled environment and had plenty of food, optimal conditions to undertake solo parenthood. There's a catch, though. Asexual reproduction is the ultimate form of inbreeding. There's no way to insert genetic diversity. So animals that clone themselves leave their lineages vulnerable to disease and mutation. For that reason, after the virgin births of the Komodo dragons, scientists recommended that the dragons, which are endangered, not be kept in isolation. They would need genetic diversity to withstand a chance of long-term success as a species. Some scientists believe that parthenogenesis may actually be an ancient form of vertebrate reproduction. The species that do it well, like pythons and sharks for example, are also some of the oldest species. More recently evolved species, like cobras, fare less well, producing only one or two babies, which often die. Unfortunately, parthenogenesis isn't something that we can tell by looking at the fossil record. It's also pert near impossible for us to truly know how many wild species reproduce on their own. There are too many fish in the sea to be able to tell if they're giving virgin birth, and many shark species are endangered to the point that it would be unethical to catch them for study. So why do animals reproduce alone when asexual reproduction has so many downsides and males are plentiful? Genetic diversity isn't the end-all and be-all. Baby sharks born to virgin mothers are less genetically diverse than those born to two parents, but they also appear to be just as healthy, having been, quote, purged of all deleterious recessive genes, according to one researcher. Females may also choose to reproduce alone because the act of sexual reproduction, finding a partner, having partners fight over you, the act of mating itself, uses up a lot of resources. Or perhaps something other than evolution is at work. Perhaps virgin births are triggered by an outside factor, a hormone or a hormonal imbalance. Or even a pathogen, like a virus or a parasite. There's a species of wasp, for instance, that starts reproducing asexually after it's been infected with a particular bacteria. And that's where we run out of ideas, at least for today. And now back, no pun intended, to the Surinam toad. If you have trypophobia, an aversion to clusters of small holes, thank you for listening and I'll see you next week. For the rest of us, Surinam toad reproduction goes like this. The female toad lays her eggs, and the male toad fertilizes the eggs and then scoops them up onto the female's back. Her skin then grows over the eggs, protecting them until they hatch. Imagine a honeycomb, but each cell, rather than containing delicious, delicious honey, holds a tiny black tadpole or froglet. After a few weeks, the little baby toads squirm and burst out of the holes of her skin, ready to swim and look for food. The female then sheds her skin and is ready to mate again. It's weird and gross and amazing. Remember, you can always find the complete script for the episode and all of the research sources at yourbrainonfacts.com. Thanks for spending part of your day with me.